Section 2 of 93 by Victor Hugo, translated by Aline Delano. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1 at Sea. Book 2, The Corvette Claymore. Chapter 1, England and France United. In the spring of 1793, when France, attacked at one and the same time on all her frontiers, experienced the pathetic diversion of the downfall of the Girondists, the following events were taking place in the Channel Islands. In Jersey, one evening on the 1st of June, about an hour before sunset, from the lovely little bay of Bonnui, a corvette set sail in that foggy kind of weather dangerous for navigation, and, for that very reason, better suited for escape than for pursuit. The ship, although it was manned by a French crew, belonged to the English squadron which had been stationed to watch the eastern point of the island. The Prince of Tour d'Auvergne, of the House of Bouillon, commanded the English fleet, and it was by his order, and for a special and pressing service, that the corvette had been detached. This corvette entered at the Trinity House under the name of the Claymore, and, apparently a freight vessel, was in point of fact a man of war. She looked like a heavy and peaceable merchant ship, but it would not have been wise to trust to that, for she had been built to serve two purposes, cunning and strength, to deceive if possible, to fight if necessary. For the service on hand that night, the freight between decks had been replaced by thirty carronades of heavy caliber. Either for the sake of giving the ship a peaceable appearance, or possibly because a storm was anticipated, these thirty carronades were housed. That is, they were firmly fastened inside by triple chains, with their muzzles tightly braced against the portholes. Nothing could be seen from the outside. The portholes were closed. It was as though the corvette wore a mask. These guns were mounted on old-fashioned bronzed wheels, called the radiating model. The regular naval corvettes carry their guns on the upper deck. But this ship, built for surprise and ambush, had its decks clear, having been arranged, as we have just seen, to carry a masked battery between decks. The Claymore, although built in a heavy and clumsy fashion, was nevertheless a good sailor, her hull being one of the strongest in the English Navy, and in an engagement she was almost equal to a frigate, although her mizzenmast was only a small one, with a fore-and-aft rig. Her rudder, of an odd and scientific shape, had a curved frame, quite unique, which had cost fifty pounds sterling in the Southampton shipyards. The crew, entirely French, was composed of refugee officers and sailors who were deserters. They were experienced men. There was not one among them who was not a good sailor, a good soldier, and a good royalist. A threefold fanaticism possessed them, for the ship, the sword, and the king. Half a battalion of marines, which could in case of necessity be disembarked, was added to the crew. The captain of the Claymore was a chevalier of Saint-Louis, Count Boisbertelot, one of the best officers of the old Royal Navy. The first officer was the Chevalier de la Vieuxville, who had commanded in the French guards the company of which Hoche was sergeant, and the pilot, Philippe Gacqual, was one of the most experienced in Jersey. It was easy to guess that the ship had some unusual work to do. In fact, a man had just stepped on board who had the look of one starting out for an adventure. He was an old man, tall, upright, and strong, with a severe countenance. A man whose age it would have been difficult to determine, for he seemed both young and old, advanced in years, yet abounding in vigor. One of those men whose eyes flash lightning though the hair is white. Judging from his energy, he was about forty years old. His air of authority was that of a man of eighty. 
At the moment when he stepped on board the corvette, his sea cloak was half open, revealing beneath wide breeches called bragubra, high boots, and a goatskin waistcoat embroidered with silk on the right side, while the rough and bristling fur was left on the wrong side, the complete costume of a Breton peasant. These old-fashioned Breton waistcoats answered two purposes, being worn both on holidays and weekdays, and could be reversed at the option of the wearer, with either the hairy or the smooth side out, fur on a weekday, and gala attire for holidays. And, as if to increase a carefully studied resemblance, the peasant dress worn by the old man was well worn on the knees and elbows, showing signs of long usage, and his cloak, made of coarse cloth, looked like the garb of a fisherman. He wore the round hat of the period, tall and broad-brimmed, which when turned down looks countrified, but when caught up on one side by a loop and a cockade has quite a military effect. He wore it turned down, country fashion, with neither loop nor cockade. Lord Balcaris, the governor of the island, and the Prince de la Tour d'Auvergne had in person escorted him on board. The secret agent of the Prince de Lambre, an old bodyguard of the Count d'Artois, himself a nobleman, had personally superintended the arrangement of his cabin, showing his attention and courtesy even so far as to carry the old man's valise. When about to leave him to return to the land, Monsieur de Jalambre had made a deep bow to this peasant. Lord Balcaras exclaimed, Good luck to you, General. And the Prince de la Tour d'Auvergne said, Au revoir, cousin. The peasant was the name by which the sailors at once called their passenger in the short dialogues which sailors hold among themselves. Yet, without further information on the subject, they understood that this peasant was no more a genuine peasant than the man of war was a merchantman. There was scarcely any wind. The Claymore left Bonnui, past Boulay Bay, remaining for some time in sight, tacking, gradually diminishing in the gathering darkness, and finally disappeared. An hour later, Gélambre, having returned home to saint hélier sent to the Count d'Artois, at the headquarters of the Duke of York, by the Southampton Express, the following lines. My lord, the departure has just taken place. Success is certain. In eight days the whole coast, from Granville to Saint-Malo, will be ablaze. Four days previously, the representative of the Marne, Prieur, on a mission to the army on the coast of Cherbourg, and just then stopping at Granville, received by a secret emissary the following message, in the same handwriting as the previous one. Citizen representative, the first of June, at high tide, the war corvette Claymore, with a masked battery, will set sail to land on the coast of France a man who answers to the following description. Tall, aged, grey-haired, dressed like a peasant, and with the hands of an aristocrat. Tomorrow I will send you further details. He will land on the morning of the second. Communicate this to the cruiser. Capture the corvette. Guillotine the man. End of section two.